Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. How are you? Good afternoon. I just about said good morning. That's how confused I am right now. Well, you got to not be confused, Steve. We got to go answer the people's questions about technical stuff. You're confused. We can't really do that. Well, you know, that's when I rely on you for... Rock, for your rock of stability. Sure, that's, that's a failing, <laughs> failing path each, each way. Uh, we'll jump into it. We'll get right into email. Our first email comes in from Glenn. Glenn writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. In a previous show, you mentioned home theater remote control, and that would provide the not-so-savvy user to simply push a button and watch certain devices. The technically challenged users in the house are having a tough time dealing with a handful of remotes that aren't required to easily watch a TV show. In the list of devices is a projector, an AV receiver, a satellite receiver, a formula, which I don't actually know what that is, a formula Android box, and a Blu-ray player. So of those things, I'll just point out I don't know what a formula Android box is. I know you've talked about this before, but I can't recall whether or not it was a standalone remote or if there was something tied into Home Assistant. I've searched and browsed through past episodes, but I just can't find anything on the topic. Any help you could provide would be greatly appreciated. I really enjoy the content that you're providing and want to thank you. Your show is one of the ones I look forward to most each week. So I want to start here. Uh, Steve, I know you and I both have home theaters and we both kind of approach this slightly differently. So. I'll ask you, how do you go about controlling your home theater in your house? So I got an IR blaster that I can put Tasmoda on. And this particular IR blaster also has a receiver. So what I do is I, I, I go through a manual step when I first get a remote or a gadget of some sort. And I point it at the receiver and I push the buttons and I watch the receiver's output um, to capture the code. And then I know that this is the up arrow or the, the volume button or whatever. And I put that into Home Assistant so that when it comes to unifying my remotes, I go get a remote that I don't have anywhere in the house so that it's not going to accidentally trigger something because it's on the same, uh, the same codes. And so what happens is I got this cheap little $15 Roku knockoff remote from Amazon because I have nothing like it in the house. I don't even, ha I don't have Roku's. And I, I set it so that the receiver, when it, when it catches a specific button press of this Roku knockoff remote, it triggers some action. And sometimes the action is send out this code over the IR blaster function of this little puck. Uh, and sometimes it's turn off the lights or whatever it is, turn on the heater in the area and essentially 
yeah, that's that's what I do. I go through a process of capturing all the signals of the remotes in the area, like the Apple remote and my AV remote and all the rest of that. And uh, when I push, for example, the power button, it turns on the projector and the receiver as well as the Apple TV, and it basically triggers all of those because Home Assistant sees I've pushed the power button on the Roku, which means, hey, I need to now go and trigger these signals from the IR blaster. Very cool. Um, so you are essentially, you, you walk down into your theater and you say, here's one action that the user will have to take, and based on that, then I know that these other things have to happen. Yep. So the power button, for example, sets the mood for the for the lights in the theater room, turns on the projector, the heater if it's cold, the AV and the Apple TV that's hooked up to the projector. And when you want to hit when you want to turn it off, you hit the you hit the other. So what I liked about this remote is it's got both a power on and a power off button, which is unusual for a remote. I specifically went out and got one that that had that, so that when you hit the power off button, uh, it does things like turns on the light that's closest to the door, so you're not blinded, but you're not tripping over things as as the theater room kind of shuts down. Absolutely. Okay. Very cool. And you're so you're controlling this essentially through Home Assistant, though. Yeah. Okay. So I have. So okay. I'll start by saying I, when I set my theater up which, by the way, would have been 2012, 2013. So it's been almost 10 years. And, I'm, and I, I, would, I would look into this again to see if I would want to do it a different way. But the way, that I chose, the, the way that I chose about doing this before, and what you've heard me reference in episodes before, is doing everything through URC, or Universal Remote Control. So this is a company that makes universal remote controls, everything from grandma and grandpa want to buy something at Best Buy and program it in their house, all the way up to you have a large conference center and you want a little touchscreen display that you hit a button and everything happens and they make everything in between. So they're a huge player in the home theater, uh, in the home theater world. Now my journey started actually with a Logitech Harmony and started with the idea of, well, I can take this thing and I can program it, and like Steve, it will do all of the email blasting and all of the things. The problem became, first of all, their programming software only ran on Windows, and it was terrible. Second of all, it was pretty terrible uh, in the way of, like, you would set up a macro or you'd set up a thing for it to do, and it just wouldn't happen or didn't work right. Um, And so I didn't really have a great experience and started looking around for something else, stumbled upon Universal Remote Control, tried that, and went actually very, very well. Worked really, really well. Um, So uh, what, what... the, the way that that universal remote control worked is it was all one unit. It was a universal remote control. Uh, you also had a little blaster system that went into the rack of the home theater, and then you would put the IR blasters on on all of the devices. The universal remote controller, URC, would learn the IR codes from the factory remotes, and then you could set up scenes. So a scene might be... I want to watch Blu-ray. Blu-ray requires the projector, the you know AV receiver turned to the you know the proper input, that kind of thing, and it would walk all the way through, and then it would execute that scene, and then it would work. Um, what ended up happening, or what ended up being the the reason that I would reconsider that, or do it maybe slightly differently today. I took what worked really well in the theater, and it did. You know, you push the button, and every time, I think it was a URC 850 is what I have, or 820, something like that. Push the button, and my wife, my kids, no matter what, 
you'd hit the button and the URC communicates RF back to the base station so you don't have to line anything up and because blasters are on all of the devices it just it worked when I tried to expand that to other places in my house you guys have probably heard me talk about the Inaset 422 which is one of my favorite remote controls off of Amazon less than $30 learns IR codes uh, it re and then it's a standardized button layout and so you'll see the 422 and a lot of times at hotels will have them um, and they'll put like a custom badge over the front that has their logo and name and all that on it so i tried to do that and for the first little bit it worked great learn the codes for the nvidia shield learn the codes for the corresponding tv and it worked just fine where i started to run into problems was twofold one is every once in a great while i would come across a tv and it was typically a cheaper tv so i bought one for my camper and it ran on 12 volts and it was some no-name chinese manufacturer and that tv had a, a problem in where the IR codes were shared with or overlapped I should say with some of the IR codes that ran on the Nvidia shield so I would go to like pause the video and it would turn the, the volume up one notch and I'd go to unpause the video and turn it down it's like eh, weird but cheap TV so I can deal with it then when Nvidia shield discontinued the uh, Nvidia shield pro that had the IR receiver in it I went to the regular NVIDIA Shield and was purchasing FLIRC adapters to try to control IR through the FLIRC adapter. That was okay, but it really wasn't a great experience. It would miss IR commands. It would double them up sometimes. Then they released, I think it was Inoset actually released an IR blaster, I thought, or an IR receiver. I thought, well, that'll be much better because it's from the actual remote control company that I'm using. Tried that. Again, double presses. The whole nine yards was not great. Ended up purchasing uh, the box from I can't the name escapes me off the top of my head their logo is a big M but they it's the company that makes boxes that run uh, Cody and they fund a lot of the 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 Cody project and so it's a, it's a box that runs a distro that all it does is Cody and then they have their own little uh, user interface skin that's basically on top of Cody and purchase one of those the box itself fantastic comes with a little RF remote comes with a little RF receiver works flawlessly tried to, it has an IR receiver so I thought well this will be great I will just program my 422 it'll be just as good as the shield nope did not work uh, like really at all uh, it would it would you would you would hit the down button it would just scroll indefinitely I would try to click on something and it would do like five other things it was a terrible experience um, and so what I came away with is the boat I'm in today in 2022 as I sit here in September is the theater part of it worked really really well but that was 10 years ago and it was with a really expensive remote and really expensive gear all designed to do that stuff. And so I guess if you can afford to buy a, a you know a few hundred dollar remote for every room in your house and have a little receiver in every room in your house, maybe you could go that route. If not, I start to think, A, are we still, is IR really the best way at this point? Or is there another standard, Bluetooth, RF, something that is a more interoperable standard and that we should be moving to for remote control? It kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense to send a light beam up to a thing and have that take action because it requires line of sight and all of those kinds of things. And really, when we talk about how both Steve and I, the way we were able to make this work is by using blasters. But if you think about it, really what you're doing is using the blasters to offset the fact that you have to have line of sight for these, these things to work. So there is likely a better way to do it. I haven't put a whole lot of thought into exactly what that is or a lot of research into what that is, but I'll bet you some one of you have. And so if you know of a better way to connect your home theater, connect your uh, your your home AV stuff to uh, a remote, and then, of course, we can automate that with Home Assistant or anything else, write it live at asknoshow.com. I would add that 
the show, we try to focus on your feedback, right? We put calls to the front of the line. We put your emails. That We move that to the, the top of the show. The whole idea of that is to focus on you, the listener. What are you interested in? What are you curious about? How can we help you? And so that is a two-way process. It requires you to write in to live at asknoahshow.com, give us feedback on things that work, on things that don't work, and ask your questions. If you are thinking of it and saying, hey, I'm struggling with this, it's the whole idea of the show. If you're struggling with something over the week and we don't have an email about it, no, we want to. Um, and so be thinking about that. This is your contribution. This is your way to give back by asking a question or bringing to our attention something that we solved well or didn't solve for you. Those kinds of things help the community. So I invite you to write those in at live at asknoahshow.com, particularly as it relates to home theater stuff. I'm actively looking for a different way to control devices that isn't IR. So if you know of one, I want to hear from you. Live at asknoahshow.com. Again, callers go to the front of the line, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'll go to Dustin in Texas. Dustin, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. What's going on, guys? Not too much. How are you? I am great. So here's my question. We recently switched internet at my church. We switched from a cable internet to fiber internet. And now when we try to log in, we can get to our online banking, but they will not let us use our bill pay. And they're telling me that that has to do with the new internet service provider. That doesn't make any sense. Your bank won't let you use the bill pay feature of your banking site because you switched an ISP. Yes. And it, we switched to Fiber. It's a fairly new company, I think, but it's still kind of mind-boggling to me. Yeah, that, man. Steve, you ever heard of that? Not specifically for an ISP, but I have absolutely <clears throat> seen, heard, experienced uh, limited functionality based on um, traffic filtering. So if you're doing ad blocking or any other thing like that, anything that might screw around with whatever analytics they've decided is mandatory for this thing. Um, like, for example, with, um, I think you block origin. I can't remember. We can't actually use the FedEx website to track our packages because it just refuses to go unless you disable your ad blocker. Um, and so I, unless the, the ISP is doing some sort of traffic shaping where they're trying to uh, limit bandwidth of some sort. I don't know why they would do that, uh, why the bank would do that specifically. That's that's really strange. Uh, did, when you were having, can you describe the problem that you were having? Was it generating some sort of an error message? Did it just not let you browse to that portion of the page? Did it? How did you become aware of the problem? Um, my wife is actually the treasurer, so I didn't see her screen per se, but she just says that it, it throws up an error every time she tries to go to the online banking or to the bill pay portion of her online banking. And it doesn't do that if you're not at the church. It just does that at the church, so far as you know. Yep, she came home, and we can log in from home, and she can get to uh, the bill pay section from here. Same, uh, same machine or different machine? Did your wife uh, take the machine home from the church and use that, or was she using different machines at home than she was at church? No, it was a different machine. Um, the machine at the church is actually a Windows-based machine, and the machine she logged in from here is a, a Linux-based machine. So, But 
I mean, it worked here and it didn't work there. So, yeah. Here's 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 what I would tell you, Dustin. I I I think there's something else going on here. I do, I don't know exactly what it is, but I suspect there is something else uh, at play here, and I think that the bank doesn't know what the problem is, and so I think they're trying. Did, did she volunteer that they switched ISPs, or did they ask specifically about that? They asked about that when we called customer support. I think she texted with them to figure out why she could no longer get into bill pay then they referenced the fact of our ISP and that they that bill pay would not work with that IS with that ISP. Really? Sounds like time to switch your bank. Like when your bank is dictating who you can get internet from. I mean I know that's not practical. I just I'm just venting on your behalf. <laughs> yeah, well I was hoping y'all had better technical answers for me. Well so here we'll uh, we'll 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 try and help you out. So let me slow so the first thing I would do if I woke up in your shoes is I would get on the phone with the ISP and I would say, hey, I know you guys are relatively new, um, but we switched to you and here is the problem that we're having. Have you ever heard of this? And if they say something along the lines of, yeah, we, we actually do and, and we're working that out or we have that problem or we have a list of customers that have that issue, something like that, that gives you something to go off of and what's the time for resolution? If they don't budge, the next thing I think I would do uh, I I would suggest that you look into um, taking a machine that you know works at home and bringing it to the church and seeing if you experience the same problem there. Because I'm still not convinced this is purely an ISP thing. I I think there's something else going on. I could be wrong, but that's I would start by eliminating variables. And so you've taken a machine, you've done it, and it comes in, yep, same problem, just doesn't let me get to bill pay, only on this ISP. Then the next thing I would do is I would. I would call back the ISP and I would start putting pressure on them and say, listen, uh, you know, we're not, uh, you know, we, 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 we can't we can't function or I'm sorry not ISP bank uh, we can't function like this we need to be able to use this feature we have switched the internet that is done it that's the internet that we're using so we're going to need you to work with us to get this resolved or we're gonna have to look elsewhere um, and if and see what kind of response you you get from the bank but I for the life of me, I cannot think of I, if if you said you know we put in this new firewall or we put in this new filtering system or something like that then i could start to understand but why does your bank care what ip address and what route your traffic takes to get to them that it just doesn't nothing about that makes nothing about that explanation makes any sense so if i was going to try and do this i so you asked for a more technical response here's what i have done now i have obviously not this specific problem but i have absolutely had problems where i went down this route so um, I open up the developer tools and I watch what happens when these things, when I'm trying to make a transaction, for example. So I was able to identify for a client of ours a specific problem that they had because I was experiencing this problem. They weren't able to trace it. So I fired up the developer tools. I'm like, here, this is specifically what I am seeing, what my browser is telling me we are seeing. Um, and I can't tell you what to look for because at this point, we don't know where, like, what is getting in between you and your service provider. Like, like Noah, the, the bank's response is very fishy. Um, I, I don't buy that um, unless they have some sort of 
long-standing animosity. So I would, I would do, there's a bunch of things I would do on that note. And this is just because no and I have a different way of approaching this problem. I would do the same thing at home and see if I'm getting the same responses. And if, if possible, I would take a laptop, have one time do it from the same laptop, uh, on the church internet and one time tethered to your phone, not doing anything else sitting in the same building and see what kind of responses that you get. Um, and if you wanted just this stupid, simple path, set up a VPN, <clears throat> pardon me, set up a VPN on, on your laptop to anywhere. It doesn't matter just so that it doesn't look like it's coming from your ISP. Mm. And if you can do that, then there's nothing internally wrong, like inherently wrong with your ISP's setup because it's still like the, even though you're connected over a VPN, you're still transiting over your IP, your ISP's network. You're it's just the same route tunneling. You just jacketed your your packets. So. Exactly. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about a VPN if you thought that would be a reasonable test just to try that and see what happens. Yeah, you can troubleshooting stuff, but it's like if that works, then I'm back to I'm real frustrated with your bank. Yeah. I'm sorry, Steve. I, I interrupted. What were you going to say? No, no. I was going to say something similar. It is, it is a test. So one of the things that I coach my clients is that um, one, one or two things is not does not prove caus- causality. When you're trying to isolate a problem, you need to. Problems usually have multiple issues along the way. It's not just usually one cause. So testing the VPN doesn't tell you anything until you've added your extra stuff. Except. You could play the non-sophisticated user to tech support. Be like, well, I don't know. I was able to turn on the VPN and it worked. Like, if you want to, if there's two ways you can go about it. You can you can be a technical user and and you know be like, hey, you can't really jerk me around because I show some level of technical understanding. Or you can play dumb or you know not. That's that's derogatory. But you can you can basically play the well. I don't really know. But when I do this common thing that someone else might do, like turn on a VPN, it works or, you know, whatever. Um, And you can see what kind of responses you get to either approach. Steve, if you were playing it over under your thoughts on it being a a thing with the machines that are specific there versus an actual network problem. Hmm. Hard to say. Um, My experience has been it's some sort of setting on the computer but if all we did was change the the ISP, I have a hard time. I have a hard time with this just in general. Like this whole thing seems strange. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's something. Well, else I did on. change. I, I did add networking equipment when we changed ISPs because I was using the the old ISPs equipment. Um, so there was a little bit of a change there. But I believe when my wife was talking to them, they referenced the actual ISP provider. Okay. So it, it almost sounds like they had some familiarity with this particular problem or that particular ISP. So yeah, I, I would still, problem. sorry, a little bit of lag. What I would, what I would do if I was to take over this is I would start from scratch, not take anybody else's account. Like not, not that there's anything wrong with what your wife has experienced, but I would go through it from the beginning. First of all, it gives you a chance to hear everything yourself. It gives them a chance to tell you the exact same story 
uh, if they give the same story because presumably you're not going to get the same rep that your wife did. So I have noticed that if I call a place like the internet provider uh, who they know me now, they'll give me a different answer than what they give Rosanna because you know I can talk pretty well with their level three support people in terms of going technically deep where she can't and she'll elicit a different response than I will and I think that's just kind of human nature so it might be interesting for you to for for you or whomever the tech support is to call yourself and walk through the chain and see what they tell you um, and and see if you follow through like did you get all the information correct did your wife understand what she was being told did they give you the same story and then you've got something and you write it down or you record the call or whatever it is you need to do to, to continue working down your path. Gotcha. Hey, since you seem to be kind of a technical guy in being involved with the church, have you done any sort of like trace routes or had any other problems with other services or things being weird or anything that you've noticed that's kind of out of the blue that you said, that's kind of weird since we changed. No, I really haven't. Um, everything's worked really well. Um, I went with the Omada, the TP-Link Omada setup. And I mean, other than just me kind of fumbling around with some of that stuff, everything has worked great from the day we switched other than that. Yeah, and they're not going to have any idea what the networking equipment on the inside is. Uh, as a side note, what do you think of the Omada? I, I've been looking at that as compared to the Unify system, and I like what I've seen so far. Coming from a very basic, like I've done some networking stuff, but never on a larger level. I've set up home networks and stuff like that. It, it's it's mm-hmm. been great. The interface is great. The the controller, you know, allowing me it automatically synced my two APs. Um, when I put my access points in, I had network set up on one, and as soon as it adopted the other one, it it synced all of my networks or my wireless networks across. Um, so from somebody who's not you know, technically adept at networking, it, it has worked really great for me. Very cool. Okay. Well, I, 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 I were we able to give you something to kind of go to at least some next steps that you can kind of take back and, and work up? Oh yeah, definitely. I just, I was really wanted just, you know, a higher level technicality to know if I'm, if there was a legitimate reason, if you guys knew of a legitimate reason why this would be. So, you know, and there's been some great troubleshooting steps. So I'm going to, Hit the ground running tomorrow and see what I can figure out. Okay, sounds good. Luck. Yeah, give us give us a call back and let us know if it works or if it doesn't, Dustin. I, I would tell you, like I I I've been doing this a long time and something just doesn't quite smell right. I I just think there's something else there's something else in there. And I've been through migrations where we've gone from one ISP to the other. I've been through migrations where we've gone from copper internet to fiber. And it's not that it's seamless. It's not that there's never a problem. It's not that anything doesn't change. There's absolutely companies that have things like whitelists and, and, and we'll put in and say, you know, we only expect traffic from this IP and stuff like that. All of that stuff absolutely happens. I haven't heard anything like that. I've, I've heard nothing that justifies the, the problems that you're having or explains the problems that you're having. So I, I would encourage you in the strongest possible way to, to put some pressure on your ISP and, and yeah, and then give us a call back and let us know how it goes. On, Again, it, do you mean on the bank? Right. On the bank, not on the ISP. The ISP is not going to be able to right. do anything yeah. to change that. Yes. Well, go <laughs> tell the ISP to go establish a tunnel with the old ISP, follow all the traffic <laughs> through them. No, I'm just kidding. 
Yeah. Bank. Put pressure on the bank. That's a ridiculous request on their report, on their part that you can't use the internet provider you want to use. I don't, I don't know how we get there. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 Email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Up next, it's the Linux Newswire Newsroom with JT. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Linus Torvalds has predicted the Linux kernel 6.0 will be released within the next week or so. In other kernel news, ButterFS's async buffered write is now slated for Linux 6.1, giving around two times throughput improvement. The Intel Habana Labs AI accelerator driver updates were submitted to the Linux 6.1 merge as well. Also, AMD submitted a feature pull request to DRM Next with some last-minute changes they would like to see as part of the upcoming Linux 6.1 kernel. The Linux Foundation launches a European division with plans to drive more open source and more transparency into the public sector. Wolfie is a new community Linux distribution that combines the best aspects of existing container base with default security measures that will include software signatures powered by SigStore. ChainGuard's new Linux undistribution, as they call it, and build tool chain Wolfie is designed from the ground up to produce container images that meet the requirements of a secure software supply chain. We refer to Wolfie as an undistro because it is not a full Linux distribution designed to run on bare metal, but a stripped-down one designed for the cloud-native era. Most notably, we don't include a Linux kernel, instead relying on the environment to provide this, said Dan Lorenk, the CEO at ChainGuard. Speaking of security, the volume of malicious activity targeting upstream open-source code repositories has hit triple-digit growth over the past three years, according to Sunatype. The security vendor claimed in newly released data to have detected a 700% rise in attacks designed to plant malware in software components, which can cause havoc when these components are used by DevOps teams downstream. Sonatype identified over 55,000 newly published packages as malicious in various open source repositories over the past year, and nearly 95,000 over the past three years. U.S. Senators Gary Peters and Rob Portman chairman and ranking member of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee have introduced bipartisan legislation to help protect federal and critical infrastructure systems by strengthening the security of open source software. In other news, Hug and Face and ServiceNow launch BigCode, a project to open source code generating AI systems. The KDE project has put out a fundraiser in an attempt to help the development team behind the open source KDE Live video editor take the next step in the development process by implementing nested timelines and a new effects panel. The multi-boot USB creator Ventoy has been updated to version 1.0.80 and adds a secondary boot menu. Ventoy now supports more than 1,000 ISOs. The free and open source RTS 0AD Alpha 26, named Juwangzu, is now out. The Debian 12 Bookworm installer now comes with support for the latest Linux 5.19 kernel and introduces various hardware improvements, starting with the detection of a Windows 11 operating system if you plan on dual-booting Debian and Windows on the same machine. And new security kernel updates are available for Ubuntu 22.04 LTS, 20.04 LTS, 18.04 LTS, and 16.04 ESM releases. These updates address 15 security vulnerabilities, including two that are common to all supported Ubuntu releases. 
thanks, JT. You can hear his Newswire broadcasts at the bottom of the hour. Try and get that as close as we can to the middle of the show. And we appreciate him putting that together for us because it gives you a really concise look of what's going on in the Linux and open source world. So if you work in that space or you play in that space and kind of want to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening, you can find out about that here. And a huge thanks to JT for putting that together for us. We'll move on to our second email. It comes in from Hank. Hank writes in and says, be sure to try all of the USB ports. I have PCs, laptops, that will only boot from certain ports. When it comes to servers and desktops, don't overlook the ports positioned internally on the motherboard, like in between PCIe slots. All the best. So, um, Steve, is is my goldfish memory failing me here, or and, and this is in response to something that we talked about, or is this yep. just like a random, hey, I just wanted to let you guys know to pay attention to USB ports? No, we had a, we had a listener... Uh, asked us last week about was it last week about the usb drives and and we were saying that so he was unable to boot off of specific usb drives or um and we were we were considering like did it was it properly formatted did we need a different brand did we try the different usb ports stuff like that and so this listener hank was just saying and i now that he's triggered me i remember that too i have a couple of laptops that only boot off of certain ports as well Yep. Yeah, actually, my wife has a laptop that does that, too. I want to be clear, when it arrived from the factory, it, all the USB ports worked, but then it fell off of a table and then off of a desk and then slid off of a car and then fell out of a backpack and then got stepped on and then the... Do- and, yeah, now, you know, three of the four USB ports don't work, but... Um, yeah, no, that's that's excellent advice. I particularly also like the comment on the motherboard USB ports. That's my, that's my, that's my secret go-to when I'm setting up a file server and I'm like... Where do we put the host operating system? All the storage drives are occupying the SATA things. Where do we put this? Ah, USB port. Works out pretty well. Our third email comes in from Jason. Jason writes in and says, Dear Noah and Steve, first of all, thanks for the awesome show and the awesome advice. I've been running a church service stream through Facebook since 2019, but in the last couple of months, Facebook has been inconsistent, caused a few failed streams. Luckily, we also have a radio station feed for those who don't need video, so we aren't completely out of luck. Our current setup for live streaming is an M1 MacBook Air with a Blackmagic web presenter box. We have other AV equipment, but the web presenter box is pretty much the last step before the laptop. Have either of you recommendations for paid or free services for streaming church services? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all that you do, Jason. So, Steve, any thoughts on a church streaming service? I don't have one for um, paid except for um, the one that Alan Jude runs. They, they, uh, they, you know, streaming video is exactly what they do. Um, I don't know of a church that uses them. I'm not sure what, uh, what they charge anymore, but my church does a dual stream to Facebook and YouTube. So, I mean, you could try switching to YouTube if you, if you don't have the upload channel to do a simultaneous upload. So I'll, I'll give you three potential options, Jason. So the first is I would I would absolutely second Steve's recommendation for Scale Engine. Um, in fact, I would tell you that that's your best option. The things I like about Scale Engine, first of all, they're low low price to start. I think it's like thirty bucks a month or something like that to get started with a plan. 
And they offer both on-demand live video as well as, or, excuse me, they offer both live streaming as well as video on-demand. And that's advantage. That's an advantage to you because people can either watch your church service live or they can go back and watch previous episodes, quote-unquote. Now, you're going to pay to store previous episodes, so you should be aware of that. But it's a very low fee to get started. In fact, they'll offer you a free trial so you can start, you can uh, sign up and just try it and get, and get started with it. The other thing I like about Scale Engine, they actually generate the embed code that you can put a live video player on your website. So you tell people you go to mychurch.com and they're able to watch your church service right on your website. No Facebook, no YouTube required. If you want to go to Facebook because you want to serve those audiences, well, guess what? Alan <laughs> comedically refers to this as uh, face twitch to or Face Twitch Tube, I think is what he calls it. So he does push streaming. You send your stream to Scale Engine. Scale Engine then sends the feed out to all of your endpoints. You can send it to YouTube. You can send it to Facebook. You can send it to Twitch. You can send it to another RTMP source. RTMP, let's talk about that for a second. Your Blackmagic stream, your, your, your web presenter is essentially a hardware encoder that encodes an RTMP stream and sends it out over to your server. So if you're sending it to Facebook, you're copying that little RTMP address and, and sending it to, to Facebook. Scale Engine's case, you're going to send it to Scale Engine. Now, you can also send an RTMP stream from something like OBS or Wirecast or whatever. And that's advantageous because it's completely universal. It's an open standard. Anybody can make an RTMP encoder. In fact, you could set up your own CDN if you wanted to go the hacker route. This would be option three, is set up Nginx and you can have Nginx actually ingest an RTMP stream and then kick it back out. So there's two options. Scale Engine, probably the best one. Set up your own thing. Could be kind of a fun project, although lots of stuff to get right there and, and, and hang on to. The third option is what's probably most common, and if you go into church tech groups or you go ask uh, five other churches what they're using, chances are they're using a service called Resi. And I have a love-hate relationship with Resi. If you want a solid streaming platform that just works, Resi is great. If you want to be able to send to Facebook, Resi is great. If you want to use your Blackmagic web encoder with Resi, you're out of luck because they require you to purchase a box from them that can only be used with them. And you feed it an SDI or HDMI source, it connects up to their, their system. And like Scale Engine, they also offer video on demand so people can go back and rewatch and stuff like that. Um, they offer different levels of those encoders. So if you, you can try to fit one that meets your budget, but I think like the entry level one, their little tiny basically Intel Nook thing is still like $1,000, maybe a little cheaper than that. So real expensive and it's a piece of hardware that only works for them. So for that reason alone, I'm not a big fan of them, but I promise you if you walk into 10 churches and say, what are you using for streaming? They're going to tell you Resi. So it's very, very popular with churches. As far as reliability goes, again, they're great. As far as being able to send to other destinations, again, they're great. I just don't like being locked into one service with uh, hardware. I will tell you, spend a little time with their support, and they actually run CentOS Linux on those boxes. And so if you plug a monitor in and plug a keyboard and mouse in, you can actually get into the package manager and do all sorts of fun stuff. So... Kind of a cool company, very cool concept, very much the predominant leader in the streaming industry in church. Would not be my first choice, but your mileage may vary, so to speak. Uh, with that, uh, let's launch into our main segment.
troubleshooting problems can be a challenge and when you there's a method for troubleshooting problems and arriving at the proper solutions and that can oftentimes if that process is messed up oftentimes can lead to additional problems or a miscommunication about what we're doing to solve the problems or how we're going about finding the cause of the problem and it all starts with something called observability so this is something that Steve is I'm gonna say Steve I'm gonna say you're passionate about it okay I understand that you would use a different adjective there but I'm gonna say that you're very passionate about observability so I want to start by asking you what is observability and why should we care so observability is all about figuring out what's going on in your system that may seem obvious on the face of it but a lot of people end up getting observability confused with other things a lot of people conflate observability which is a combination of logging metrics and tracing with just the ability to see something in the system. Most commonly, this is with tracing or with um, metrics. People think that if I'm getting stuff coming in from Prometheus and I've put it in a nice Grafana dashboard that I've got observability, that's not the case. So uh, monitoring is a list of failure conditions that are known, okay? Observability involves the idea that you're gonna emit any and all data points that you may need in the future. So observability extends monitoring but they're distinct they're not the same thing okay when you go to set up observability what does that practically look like it's so you've talked about a little bit about what it's not and how monitoring is kind of separate what kind of things so i have a server and i maybe have a router and a switch and some other little things but i have a small little network and i want to either gain observability or expand observability where does a person start to get observability into a thing so uh the the most common place to start is to get metrics now there's some problems with that that we don't really have time to get into tonight but if the audience is interested in this um, this is a big part of what i do for my my day job is helping clients talk about uh, service level indicators and how you go about making sure that you're tracking the right things and how do you how do you get observability and then when you have a problem how do you deal with it and like that is that is I would say about 90% of my job is just kind of dealing with this sort of stuff. When you're just stepping into it, you need to have some sort of metrics to begin with. That's your first glimpse. But that's kind of like looking for giant potholes in the road. It's going to, you know, you're going to avoid some of the major pitfalls maybe, but it's not necessarily going to help get you to where you want to be. Just because you can see that the road dips off doesn't, you don't know, am I going down a hill or does the road just disappear? Like there's a bunch of information that's missing if all you do is gather metrics about your system. So for example, if your CPU is burning hot, do you know if you have a problem? Is that actually a problem? Is it just Mm. the fact that the application is really having to crunch through something because, you know, like, So for example, today, I've got 16 cores in the system I'm sitting on right now, and it fired up 14 of them today. And is that a problem? Well, in this case, no, because I had an automated video encoder that kicked off in the background. It was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. So metrics don't actually tell you what's wrong. Metrics tell you there might be a problem. They don't tell you what is the problem. It tells you what's happening. It doesn't necessarily tell you if there's a misconfiguration or something is failing to do what it's supposed to do. Maybe it's doing exactly what you told it to do. 
it doesn't even necessarily tell you that that something's happening right mm-hmm. that's that's the whole point there is you you have to be aware of the fact that okay sure you'll see that memory goes up and down or cpu goes up and down and from that standpoint you can see that something is happening is it good is it bad is it expected you know none of those things can be answered by metrics you have to you have to be really aware of how and what your system is trying to accomplish in order to do this so observability itself aims to provide like highly granular insights into the behavior of the system with context and that's what metrics are missing there is no context at all when you just go and gather a bunch of metrics it means zip right so uh, that is kind of one of the biggest things when you're talking about observability there's kind of there are three steps to observability you collect you monitor and you analyze so it sounds like collect and monitor would be the same thing but they're not so you have to collect the metrics but then you also have to watch them right just because you started getting them doesn't mean that like if i just start collecting metrics and i see the cpu is running at 50 percent i don't know if that's abnormal maybe that's normal maybe the box is loaded down in such a way that like it's supposed to be doing that all the time and you won't know that until you've monitored it for some time and then of course you have to analyze it like do i have anomalies and stuff like that so you have to you have to be very careful about following through with the steps and you don't want to inundate yourself with every metric under the sun like you can get right down into the number of interrupts and all of the rest of that fun stuff on your system but you might end up generating for yourself a visual needle in a haystack and that doesn't help anybody so you have to gathering metrics is not is not observability observability is about uh, your best attempt your best first attempt at understanding the workload and kind of crafting um, some sort of, I'll say dashboard, but some sort of way to understand your system. So if I can, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on myself here for a little bit. So uh, 15 second elevator recap, (coughs) tried to migrate the matrix server into the data center, put it on a box, failed miserably, put it back to DigitalOcean, started looking into why that happened. What I got from you when we had that conversation was you need more metrics. You need to understand what's happening here. So install Prometheus, install Grafana, took a look at it, figured out it was disk IO that was throttling. Now we have something. But like you said, it took months of watching what that disk IO was to see like, is that a normal thing? Is that where the is that where when we have a problem? Or is does that expand out and it runs like that for six months and there isn't an issue? We didn't know that off the bat. So I've put metrics in, I've collected them, I've watched them for a long time, so now I understand what my baseline is. And in the analy- when you get to the analytic process, what is a person looking for? What are some key indicators that you can look and say, here's when, when analyzing the metrics that you collect and trying to gain observability, here's what you're looking for, here's how you evaluate that information? So that's a really difficult thing because the trap that that we have to try and avoid is is that when you're monitoring something you are only looking for known problems and that's that's by necessity you can't look for something that you don't know about mm-hmm. so you can that that's why metrics is only a tiny part of the idea of observability 
because metrics are only things that you can guess at that you might need based on your past experiences. Like I had a problem like this. So like maybe I need to watch more disc IO things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so by necessity, metrics is going to lead you down a path because you have informed yourself. uh, How do I put this properly? What I'm trying to say is you have a bias because when you're creating the metrics, you're thinking about the past things and you only are thinking about known problems because you, don't you know can't you don't come. Know. Exactly, right? So I want to get off of talking about metrics. And what you really need to do is start doing some tracing. So what tracing is, is this idea that you have a transaction, doesn't matter what kind of software you're running, and a transaction is usually not just a single thread anymore. It's doing a bunch of different a bunch of different tasks. Like if we talk about video transcoding, uh, a span. So a span is a a specific unit of time that a type of work happens. And so you can have multiple spans in a trace. So if I have my video my video transcoding in a real simple way, you have you you go to transcode a video the very first thing it does is going to try and open the file and that takes a certain amount of time and that's a span and then it's going to try it like so it opens the file and reads the file in to the point that it needs to that's a specific span then it's actually going to try and do the operation on the file usually in memory and that's a span and then you have writing out to the disk and that's just a very basic so your trace of the of a file being adjusted in the video file has I've done the read operation I've done my adjustment operation and then I've written the file back out and they're they are represented uh, horizontally on a graph where you have at the very top is going to be the entire length of the the processing time so like what we would call the real time so on if you just ran time and then some command you'll see real and system and a bunch of other things the real time is the actual amount of time. Like if I was timing it to my watch, how long did it take me to process this video? So that will be at the top. Let's say it's, let's say it's 40 seconds. Uh, underneath that, there's going to be a bar that will represent the amount of time it took to open the file. Maybe it's two seconds. And then underneath that, there'll be a bar that says how long it took to process the file. And maybe that's 30 seconds. And then maybe it took another, I don't know, five seconds to write the file out. And that is your complete trace. The trace is going to tell you where you are having a problem. It'll tell you, if if you've watched these traces enough, you'll notice that maybe uh, reading off the disk is taking you longer than it used to. And maybe you need to defrag your hard drive because you're having a hard time pulling all those files, like assembling that file together. If it's writing the file back out, maybe you've got bad sectors on your hard drive. So the trace will actually pinpoint where your your application is having a problem because at the end of the day we care about the application that's running on the platform not the platform itself so noah doesn't care that his box is going crazy noah cares that matrix isn't running right that's the end purpose of having the the platform in itself so to sum up you you get the metrics and the metrics kind of give you some little indication of where you might start looking maybe uh, but tracing really walks you through 
an individual transaction for the type of software that you're running. And um, there's a bunch of ways that you can do this. The home enthusiast is going to have a little bit of trouble with this because you can either um, build a tracing library into your application or you can use something like Dynatrace or Sumo Logic. And what they do is every time, so it runs an agent on your system, and every time that there is a transaction, it injects a header so that it can trace that transaction all the way through. Um, so that, like the big companies, they tend to do one or a combination of things where they'll use the automatic injection, but they'll also like, for example, if if you are transferring money, there's a lot of regulation. So they'll they'll have the automatic injection. They'll have the network. Uh, so they'll have the network do a, an injection. They'll have the, like Dynatrace do an injection, and they'll also put it inside of the payload itself. So the application itself says, "Hey, I'm creating a transaction. It has this ID, and that follows it all the way through." So if people wanted to learn more about this, what are some resources they could go to? So uh, there's a couple of really good talks. Um, so by Brian Cantrell did uh, a couple of really good talks in uh, there's a conference called GoTo. Um, mm-hmm. And so basically, if you look up the GoTo stuff on YouTube, there will be several talks there. There's Brian Cantrell and there's another guy. Um, his name escapes me off the top of my head. That's that's a good place to start. You could also look up the Google SRE book, and they have their own idea of, of observability. Or you write back into the show, and I'm happy to talk your ear off. Yeah, I, I, w- I would like that. I'd like to dig in further. I, the kind of stuff is fascinating to me. I, I'm sure we could burn a lot more on it. Like I said, you're very passionate about observability. But the music in our ears means we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, we like your questions. We like your comments. Write those in live at AskNoahShow.com. Head over to podcast.AskNoahShow.com. Get the show notes. You'll get the entire show, not just what we have time to cover. All of the articles and references, they're there. Uh, and follow us on Twitter, at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Evans. The show, at Ask Noah Show. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, at AskNoahShow.com.